Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. Today we are joined by Tony Smale and Tony is a management consultant with a particular interest in culture and he's been consulting for more than 30 years and it's a great pleasure to have him on the podcast. So welcome Tony. Thank you Oliver. It's uh, great to be able to join you. We want to talk about culture. Now, why would a management consultant be interested in culture? Shouldn't you just be interested in business practices and the hard-cold facts of economics? What does culture have to do with it? That's a really good question, and it's one that a lot of people struggle with. The reality is our national culture determines how we think. And if we think about economics, for instance, it's about understanding the collective behavior of actors in a particular environment, but those people think differently in different environments. So Americans, Australians, Kiwis think differently about economic behavior. We also think differently about the practices of innovation and entrepreneurship. And it's an area that we have tended to neglect in New Zealand and tried to understand our, our economic performance. So there was a famous essay written by Max Weber, the German sociologist, more than a century ago, and he compared Protestant and Catholic countries and came to the conclusion that Protestant countries typically did better economically. Is that the kind of thinking behind your approach? In a general sense, yes, it is. Because those two religions, for instance, you'll find that Protestant faith is more individualistic than is the Catholic faith, where it is a faith where it is more communitarian, and that, in fact, affects entrepreneurship. So, in general, but we have within the science of national culture a whole range of what we refer to as dimensions, which describe how we relate to the world and our place in it. Things like whether we're individualist, whether we have a desire for discovery and curiosity, for instance. And how does New Zealand score on this? Are we curious? Are we individualist? Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting thing because we tend to think, in fact, most cultures tend to think we're middle of the road. And if you were to ask the typical Kiwi, where would we sit in, in the world in terms of culture, we'd sort of shrug our shoulders and go, well, you know, left of that one and right of that one. But in actual fact, for most of these dimensions, we are at the extreme end of a bipolar scale. So we're strongly individualistic, for instance. We are the second least assertive people on the planet, much to our surprise, because we tend to think the opposite to that. We are the most Oh, that curious. doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, least assertive. <laughs> New Zealand doesn't ever really tell you what they think. That's exactly right. And that's a reflection of where we came from, the... Kiwi culture was derived from the southern part of England, people who were in service, who were deferential to a master. And one of their ways of being deferential was to answer a question with another question. And, that and sounds I know familiar. It will sound very familiar. In fact, when we ask in workshops, for instance, of people that have come here from other places, what was the thing that struck you most? Almost invariably, it is that it's impossible to get a direct answer. If you ask a Kiwi, what time will you be ready to go, for instance, you'll get a long list of things that have to happen before you can go, but you will never get an answer that has a number in it. Is that also one of the defining differences between us and our Australian cousins? 
Absolutely. Uh, Australians are much more direct, uh, much more assertive. We may be, although there is no statistical analysis on this, but from our work, we would suggest that Kiwis are the least direct people on the planet, even though we describe ourselves as you know, straight shooting, no-nonsense people. What does humour have to do with that? Do, do uh, Kiwis have a different sense of humour or are they just as indirect there too? We we tend to the same sort of British style of humour, that dry irony, and we see that with looking at British humour on television versus American humour. It took us a long time to understand what was funny about American humour because it is, it is quite different in the way it's presented. It's more about uh, people having, you might call, silly experiences as opposed to the, the wit that's associated with with British humour. And when you try to cross languages, it becomes even more interesting. We have a bicultural family, a German daughter-in-law, for instance, and the children are bicultural. And one of their favourite television programmes is Shaun the Sheep, which yes. for English speakers is hilarious, but the pun doesn't play out in German. Yeah, there is a language barrier. By the way, I think that's one of the reasons why many people believe Germans don't have a sense of humour. It's just because it doesn't translate. That's absolutely the case. I have learned as a result of having a German family. Mm -hmm. Another question, actually, what does country size have to do with it? So my assumption is Australians are also more direct because you will never meet again. You have a business contact and afterwards it's a vast country and these people disappear. You will never again meet in the rest of your life and you don't have any friends in common, you didn't study together and your children won't go to the same sports club. In New Zealand, of course, you run into each other all the time and there is the famous two degrees of separation. So you can't afford to be too erect. At least you can't afford to lose friends because otherwise you'll be really on your own. Yes, uh, countryside certainly plays out, but I've not done any work to ascertain whether that's the, the reason for it or whether you're going to run into them or not. Or is it just the, the effect that the space has, for instance, of, you know, in Africa, they talk about the big sky and the freedom that comes with that. So I don't really have a, a particular perspective on that. Right. Now, if you link it back to economics and economic performance, I take what you say, we are quite individualist as a culture, and yet we are not outspoken. We really make it hard for anyone else to negotiate with us, that I would assume doesn't bode well then for economic performance. Yeah, absolutely right, Oliver. We we have a very different view of ourselves to what other people have of us. We think of ourselves as being driven by relationships because we like to sit down and have a beer with people and away we, we go if we're in a sales context, for instance, but some work done for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise decade, a decade or more ago now, for instance, looking at the views of New Zealand business people in foreign markets, we were viewed as being very short-term transaction-based, and that fits in with culture because we are in the Western world, have one of the shortest time horizons. We're highly risk-averse but we're only highly risk-averse when it comes to money. We're happy to jump off a, a cliff attached to a rubber band. We're weak negotiators. I think we probably all realise that because we simply don't have very many options 
to learn to negotiate. If you grow up in Asia, for instance, everything is a case of negotiation because you're trying to find a point where both parties can live with whatever it is you're working on. Whereas you know, in, in New Zealand, probably the only time we would try and negotiate is if we were buying a car. Even if we're buying a house, we've got an intermediary. One of the interesting things with this research was we're reluctant to understand our customers' culture. And that comes as no surprise because we don't understand our own culture. And of course, we have two distinct cultures in New Zealand with Maori culture and what we refer to as Kiwi culture, which is kind of everything blended together. We're inflexible, which is quite different to how we feel about ourselves. We have a take it or leave it attitude. So when we go into a negotiation, we tend to put our best offer on the table and that leaves us nowhere to go in terms of the negotiation. And I think the real kicker with this piece of research was that we're less fun to do business with than Australians. And that's something that we really need to hang our heads over. Oh, well, you can have a lot of fun with the Australians. That's true. I have to ask, though, actually, how much of this is a prejudice? I mean, what you describe sounds very much almost stereotypical, really, of other countries as well. But how much of that is actually born out in fact? Can you actually give us some hard data on this? Or are these just qualitative observations? There have been four major global studies of cultural dimensions. They have all found very, even though they've used quite different models, they have all come up with quite similar findings. So we're not um, talking about stereotypes. We're just talking about something that's actually really documented. It, it is absolutely really documented, replicated, peer-reviewed, widely published It is considered a, a valid science in its own right, albeit a very specialized area of, of science. And the studies have been originated mostly out of the, well, probably exclusively out of the Western world, but across the West. So the US, Israel, Canada, Netherlands. So we have um, comparative yeah. data for the other countries as well. We do. Yeah. We do indeed. And are there some countries that are, by their own features, more compatible with New Zealand or less compatible? I'm, I'm thinking maybe of the Dutch. I mean, the Dutch have this reputation of being extremely outspoken. They really don't leave you in any doubt what they think. Now, imagine you put a Dutch businessman together with a New Zealander. That would probably ask for trouble then. In the absence of actually understanding, you're absolutely right. But interestingly, if you work for a Dutch multinational before you work overseas, you will be required to study in some depth national cultures so that you understand your own national culture, you understand the national cultures of the place that you're going to. Mm. And I think it's important in this context to recognize that national culture, it, it, it's not about how we shake hands or, or do we bow, etc. This is about how our brain is wired. Uh, national culture is so influential that it impacts the way that the neural pathways are laid down in our brains during our childhood. So we do quite literally think differently depending on where we come from. That's true. Actually, how much of a spectrum is there within a national culture? So I'm thinking of New Zealand business leaders and Maybe I shouldn't name anyone. Well, maybe I name people who are no longer with us, but have a legendary reputation. Think of Sir Doug Myers. Doug Myers, of course, was famously outspoken. He, yep. he told everybody exactly what he thought, and yet he was the quintessential New Zealand business leader. 
So he was a Kiwi yes. who didn't really conform to any of the national stereotypes. So there is variation within the national kind of culture. Absolutely, and and I think that brings us into the to the field, which has emerged subsequent to the earlier work around, uh, you know, that we've already talked about, which is loose cultures and tight cultures. Tight cultures are where there are strong pressures to conform with norms. So let and me guess, Japan. Japan yeah. is is one. Pakistan, Malaysia. Yep. And there are sanctions for not complying with the social norms, for not being like everybody else. Yep. Loose cultures, of which the, the typical examples are Australia, United States and New Zealand, there is a wide range of behaviours tolerated and little or no sanctions, or little or no public sanctions anyway. We may talk behind a person's back saying, well, you know, they were a impolite, outspoken, etc. And the tall poppy syndrome is really interesting because the tall poppy syndrome is a mechanism to moderate extreme behaviours. And, you know, we think it's a prejudice against people who are successful, but work at Otago University showed that we don't actually have a resentment of success. We have a resentment of people who talk about their success and that we think when we apply the tall poppy syndrome, we're actually doing a service to them by stopping them being subject to sanction for being outspoken. And there's a lot of that here, of course. Yes, there is. Although almost every country has some form of it. In Scandinavia, there are forms of the tall poppy syndrome that are much more vicious than our version. Oh, how so? Uh, well, it's actually, it, it was derived from a book whose title I can't remember off offhand, but it is, uh, it, it is almost, uh, well, we would, ex we would consider it extreme language in terms of moderating people's behaviour. Right. Let me share one anecdote with you. When I arrived in New Zealand in 2012, I had come from Sydney, I had worked in London before, and I continued giving the same kinds of speeches in New Zealand. And what happened was interesting and quite instructive because people came to me after my speeches and said, oh, that was really refreshing to hear someone speak his mind. And for the first couple of months, I thought it was a compliment. And then I realized they were trying to tell me something. Just, we don't do that here. Just moderate your language and basically shut the F up. Yep. Is, is, is that typical of New Zealand culture? Yes, it is. Uh, that's what we would call a backhanded compliment. Um, it's <laughs> yes. posed as a compliment, but it's not. And we use a lot of inside-out language. We will say Have you to got people, examples? Yeah, yeah, we will say to somebody, you don't want a cup of tea. <laughs> yes. Which means, do you want a cup of tea? Sure. And the answer to that question is, I wouldn't say no, mm -hmm. um, which means yes. So we use a lot of this inside-out language, which works fine, Kiwi to Kiwi. But as soon as you try to cross languages, even other English language, it becomes almost impossible. I, I know of one wine company, for instance, which is owned by American principals who attach an interpreter who, who come, who's an English speaker, but from a third culture to try and make sense of Kiwi for the American owners. So they can they can hear the words. Oh, that would be know. very useful because I had the experience yeah, uh, of talking to companies about becoming members of the initiative. 
The conversation is super friendly and oh, that sounds really interesting. It's awesome what you do. Absolutely no way of thinking about it. And initially I was then very hopeful and now I know, okay, when I've got this kind of conversation, they're not going to join. Absolutely. That's our extreme extreme politeness, I guess. We, we have an incredible reluctance to say no. We have, uh, in, in a, a management sense, an extreme reluctance to set clear expectations for our for our staff and even more reluctance to give them feedback as to how they're doing against what expectations we might have. But those expectations, unfortunately, they are largely in our own head. That doesn't stop us from getting annoyed with our staff when they don't fulfill the expectations that we haven't told them about. So two obvious questions. One, what does it do for economic performance? Can we measure the effect on economic performance? And two, can we do anything about it? Because culture is something that you can't legislate for. I mean, we've legislated for lots of things. We have among the best institutional settings in the world in our economy. And yet um, culture is something that you simply can't set. It's just something that evolves over long periods of time. And I imagine unless you swap the population and maybe you have more people coming from other countries with different attitudes, it will be with us for a long time. It, it will. And even having high immigration doesn't necessarily shift the trajectory of, of culture. It is very, very resilient because it's embedded in not just in the brains of the people, but it's embedded in institutions and practices. And, and you would know if you, if you went to an information centre in Europe, the way that you behaved would be very different. You would get a little ticket that had a number on it and mm -hmm. you would stand in, in a line where people were one behind the other and wait for your number to come up. Whereas in New Zealand, you just sort of bowled in, mill around, look at other people and figure out for yourself whether it's your turn or not. I, I think we have, you, you can't change culture. Let's make that straightforward and nor should we try because it is not the culture itself that is the problem. It is the policies that we match against it. And the example that we often use is Germany as a quite tight culture, as a culture that favours the latter stage of the implementation. In other words, the capture of value traditionally wasn't good at inventing things. And in the 19th century, late 19th century, recognised that it was reliant upon the, the United Kingdom or Great Britain, as they were known in those days, for its military inventions. So it changed its policies and strategies. It developed educational processes to establish how you invent things and established research institutions, recognising that those were a precursor to creating wealth. And we make an assumption that there's this nice, smooth transition from inventing things to capturing the prosperity. But we know from examples around the world and throughout history that inventing things doesn't guarantee accumulating wealth. The Industrial Revolution is a really good example. Most of the inventions occurred in France, but Britain implemented and benefited from them. So the OECD refers to New Zealand's paradox. We've got all these great settings, yes. but we don't capture value. The Ministry of Economic Development a decade or two ago referred to a wedge that prevented us from capturing as much value from our innovative processes 
as do similar EU countries, for instance. And I would contend that that is largely around how we think about the entrepreneurial process, how we think about the importance of capturing value. We, we've been described by Professor Michael Porter as satisfices, which is a term, as you know, from economics in contrast, at the other end of the scale, you've got maximizers. Americans tend to be maximizers, will exploit an opportunity to its full degree. We only exploit an opportunity until we think we've done enough. We've captured enough. She'll be right. She'll be right. And it's also driven by our unparalleled desire for adventure and discovery. So we tend to move on to our next adventure before we've captured the value. So you might say we get bored with what we're doing now, which may well involve capturing value from an activity, moving on to the next exciting invention, adventure, creativity. So policy, we need to educate people. There's very little reference in our MBA programs, for instance, to the impact of national culture. We need to be educated, we need to learn, we need to have policies to focus on the last 10% of what we're doing, not the first 10%, because we're already really good at the first part of the process. It's the very tail end, that last 10% of engaging with people, of understanding other people's culture, etc., that determines, which makes up that wedge. Well, it's, um, a, it's the stories we're telling ourselves. It's this, she'll be right. It's the number eight wire mentality. Somehow we'll get through, and we think we are somehow exceptional in our averageness. Exceptional in our inventiveness, even. Yeah, that too. Um, and interestingly, most Anglo-Saxon-derived countries believe they're the most inventive country in the world. And so we're not distinct in that regard. Yes, we are inventive and more inventive than most, but our problem comes with our failure to translate, to get across that wedge, to to cross over into the implementation, to do that last 10% that creates and captures for us Mm. the value. Is that a general problem with our mentality? Only yesterday I actually attended a conference or or a panel discussion on New Zealand's geopolitical role. And one of the speakers there said, actually, the problem is we don't quite understand how the world really sees us. We think we are the kind of larger force in the Pacific, except nobody else thinks of us that way. So yeah. we And we think the world really cares for what we do and how we set an example, if we set an example, except nobody pays any attention. So we often think the world has a different image of us than it's actually the case. I think you're you're absolutely right there. And more importantly is that we have a different view of the reality. And, and when it comes to the satisficing or capturing the value, it's not that we can't do it. It's that we think that there isn't value to us in doing it. So if we look at America, America's Cup Yacht, Mm-hmm. boats for instance yep. no detail left unturned they're not just operating out in the 10% the last 10% they're operating out in the last 0.1% the all blacks where no stone is left unturned so we're, we're absolutely lip. capable of this so long as we recognise 
that we can derive value, but we feel like we're and we're not deriving value. Uh, think of transaction versus relationship basis to our customers. We don't see value in taking the time to build a relationship. And that may be the distinction between widespread Kiwi behavior and customary Maori behavior, for instance, where everything is based on relationship. You learn that you can trust somebody and then you go from there. Whereas we will draw up a contract, we'll bring the lawyers in if something goes wrong. Whereas most of the rest of the world want to know before they enter into a contract that if something goes wrong, you're not going to have to bring the lawyers in. You're going to be able to sit down and on a basis of trust, resolve the issues. Now, Tony, in about a bit more than three weeks, we'll be taking members of the New Zealand Initiative to Ireland on a business delegation. We'll spend a week in Dublin, Galway and Belfast. And we're going because we want to find out actually what the Irish have done right. Because 30 years ago, Ireland's GDP per capita was about the same as New Zealand's. Now they are yep. about twice. The one difference, actually, that I could find was FDI. So foreign direct investment flooding into the yep. Irish economy and actually creating wealth. But apart from that, there are quite distinct parallels between Irish mentality and New Zealand mentality. So you mentioned the inability to really have a straightforward conversation. I think there is some of that in Ireland as well where in our case it's the she'll be right and we're not telling you what we think and the tall poppy syndrome. In Ireland it's to be sure, to be sure everything will, will be fine, but actually everything is kind of a little bit more spontaneously organized. So isn't Ireland a nice case study for us then? So they've got a culture which has some of our features and yet they completely transformed the economy by getting outsiders in with their openness to foreign direct investment. Is that a path that New Zealand might want to follow? It's certainly something that we need to look at. We're very concerned about losing control and foreign direct investment does not have to mean we lose control. It's, we, we, we're we afraid that people will steal our ideas. But Even our really land. We are becoming yeah, tenants absolutely. in our own country. We can't feed ourselves apparently anymore once we let these bloody foreigners in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely shocking. But what I would tell you is you would have to be really quick to steal an idea from a Kiwi because we'll give it to you long before <laughs> you'd have a chance to steal it. The, the Irish culture and Kiwi culture do indeed have some really strong parallels. And I've had the, the great good fortune. My wife worked extensively with Irish businesses and I was able to coattail on that when I was doing the work, doing my research work. And yes, there are distinct parallels and interestingly distinct origins which go back to the domination by by the English. So how um, come the Irish are now suddenly more successful than us? Well, I, I think you've put your finger on it. They had massive, massive EU investment. And massive and, international investment. And uh, absolutely, especially around things like software. Yes, and, and um, IT production, pharmaceuticals. I actually read a statistic in Ireland, you now have about 250,000 US dollars of FDI stock per capita. So this is a different league compared to where we are in New Zealand. Do you think that actually it is more than the dollars actually flooding into Ireland? It's actually the transfer of culture that matters. Well, I, I think there is a transfer of culture, but it's also a liberation of Irish culture. I recall one of the people I spent some time with saying, you know, traditionally Irish 
children were educated for export. <laughs> yes. And that has changed, I, I think, somewhere along the line. And, and it will be some silly element like uh, river dance or something changed how the Irish viewed themselves. And you too. Yes, yes. And as a consequence, they have become open to. They, they, the cultural dimensions that we measure will be the same, but somewhere their behaviours have changed and they have become proud. And you see that in the going back right to the beginning with the, the Protestant and Catholic. The, the relationship between Irish and their church has changed and they have become more enriched in terms of their own culture. I think everybody looked upon the culture with, of the Irish. You know, the, there weren't a lot of compliments about being Irish. And mm. somewhere along the line, something was triggered. And hopefully you might find that out with your study group. Something was triggered that changed how the Irish felt about themselves or expressed themselves. Well, we want to find out particularly what we can learn from the Irish and whether there's anything that could be emulated down here. Mm. So I mentioned at the beginning, you've been a management consultant for more than 30 years and you've thought a lot about culture, but you've also observed a lot of changes, presumably, over those 30-something years in our New Zealand culture. So if I ask you now, towards the end of our conversation, to look maybe 30 years ahead, what is the optimistic and what is the pessimistic scenario for New Zealand, both in economic performance and for our culture? Where do you see us in, say, around 2050? The pessimistic first. Yeah, yeah because we always finish on optimism in New Zealand. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. The pessimistic is that we will continue on our current trajectory. We will continue hammering away at the idea that because we're inventive, we must translate that into value. So all we have to do is be more inventive. We will continue to blame our uh, location in the in the world. Uh, we're a long way from market. We've got a small domestic market, etc. Yet curiously, in the first part of the 20th century, we were number one GDP per capita in the world. We had one market. It was Mother England. And it couldn't have been further away. Our markets have actually come closer to us and our markets have got much bigger. Our domestic market has got bigger. But what's changed? Well, actually, things have gone from first to somewhere in the in the 50s. So unless we can change how we view entrepreneurship, how we view that wedge between the early stage and the latter stage of innovation, and it may be, that and, and innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, when you look at definitions and discussions, it's most incredibly circular. But it may be that entrepreneurship is the process of transitioning from the early initiation stages of innovation to the implementation stages. Or it may just be that entrepreneurship is the implementation stage. But unless we can work that out, I see us continuing on our current trajectory. Conversely, if we can get our head around from a policy perspective, that we can learn why our Māori businesses, for instance, rated as more entrepreneurial, what is happening in the way that Māori businesses think and behave, 
that makes them more entrepreneurial. You know, we've got a case study right there. Uh, we, we know the outcome. We know the metric. What's the driver behind the metric? I, I think the biggest challenge that we have is we have a little bit of a cringe as soon as we start talking about the subject. You mentioned it at the beginning, stereotyping. Well, this is not stereotyping. This is understanding why we are who we are. We want to be proud. We are proud of who we are. Let's understand of that in more depth, like most other countries do. If we look at national innovation systems, for instance, Japan has Japanese culture right at the heart of their national innovation system model. Our model of national innovation system mentions Maori entrepreneurship, but nothing else in terms of culture. It's a purely traditional economics model. So that's not inherently wrong. It's just not complete. Well, then let's hope that we have learned something. I have learned something in our conversation. The country has a bit of learning to do, but um, we were supposed to finish, of course, on an optimistic note since we are complying with national stereotypes. And with that, I can just thank you for enlightening us. Tony, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and I think we should have another conversation in the future to see where this culture is developing. We'd love to do that, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>